Are we recording? Mm. Yeah. Why do you seem so low energy? <laughs> we this is a fantastic episode we've just had. It, it, really no, it energizing, really... fantastic conversation. Yeah, I agree. So I... why do you look like you're about to pass out? Uh, the last week of classes. Was I... today your last day of class? Mm-hmm. So you don't teach next week. Right. Just, no, and it's been a very challenging semester in terms eh, of... It, but, you know, you just can't complain. Can't I, complain. I'm not... Who's complain? I didn't complain. I, 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 well, no. I, 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 I feel just like, made an observation. I feel like I can't complain. I mean, it's, it's a, you know, I, I love what I do. But, um, I do, too. A lot of papers. Dealing with a lot of papers this week. Yeah. So I've read a tremendous number of papers in rapid succession. In draft yeah. for your, right. for your and, students. And, yeah. of course, the last week of school, you're in, I, I, I don't know about you, but I'm always anticipating grading. Yeah, and I'm not there yet mentally. I'm not yet anticipating. I see it, like because there's no clear horizon yet. You know, the grading looms. Mm. Uh, Wouldn't you rather take these exams than grade them any day? Yeah, grading is very stressful because it's you know you have to be uh, very careful. Uh, It's very consequential for the students receiving the grades. Very, of course. One is one has to be at one's highest level of alertness and carefulness and um and you're reading many 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 versions of the same answer right so it's and it's not, actually hard not, to maintain right. and, that level and not of one of those versions is the is the individual's best work no which they right. would be the first person to, to say like, like not of mine or my, my best work, work. And, yeah. and if and if i were writing the question it wouldn't be my best either of course not right so we all know we can all relate to that at a human level it captures something but not and, the person's and most yet, polished that's thing the situation we're in right yeah. it's you can't get around it um so it's well that, that produces i don't some, feel like if you're doing the exam situation yeah. you can't get around it yeah uh and so that's the stress situation it presents so yeah, yeah that's not a great thing to look the salient to. thing that you just mentioned is yes you um because you it, you feel the weight of of uh you feel the weight of the student's own concerns about fairness and you know each student deserves the the utmost attention to what they've written right and 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 so that, that's what one tries and to And that provide. feels like a tremendous weight which prevents me from from drinking which is really what I'd like to do <laughs> when, I, when I read through these and not because they're bad like you know it's not that right? it's they're they're bad in an absolute sense in that these are basically rushed instances of writing from which right. you're gathering evidence about what the student knows. But they um right. you know, they rarely do you get an exam that just makes the heart sing with yeah. aesthetic beauty and joy. That right. Is I rare. mean yeah. and, and I I didn't write any of those exams when I was in law school. Yeah. You know, they're examples of at best of kind of workmanlike, you know, working through and the law. Also you feel a little bit like you know, sometimes uh, I'll read a particular paper and I'll think, gosh, you know, it couldn't, like, I, it, the difference between what I see and my expectation of what I would have seen based on the question, I sort of have this feeling like, you know, did I, did I, couldn't I have reached you better? Yeah, of course. As a right. student and couldn't, right. couldn't you, wouldn't you have seen this better? Yes. And I feel bad about that. And... It is a time of mutual regrets. <laughs> 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 if only yeah. I'd studied more. If only I'd gotten you to study more. Yeah, if I'm only I'd reached you better. To, and so I don't think about these. I'm not in a rush to think about this. So I see. I'm I can't thinking about it. I, 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 I also have this abiding sense that there's a that there's a better way, mm. and 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 it, and it bothers me that I've not yet cracked it. You know. Yeah, I don't have that sense. So I, 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 so it doesn't bother me in that way. I'm, I, I have the that unshakable sense, especially when I'm twenty exams into an eighty exam class. Mm. Um, yeah, you, you you just think to yourself, there has to be a better way than this. Yeah, 
And I haven't come up with it yet. I, I can't seem to do multiple choice. I've never done multiple choice. I don't know how I would even do it. Um, I mean, the, the better, well, so, so one thing that would be a way, a different way, I don't know that it would be a better way, uh, but, a, but a different way uh, would have to do with the number of categories into which one, one is trying to sort the exam response. Of course, right. So yeah. if you sort into three piles, right, really great, really bad and everybody else in the right. middle, uh, that's actually, that could be done more rapidly, reliably. Uh, and, and, and fairly, you think. But Well, and you especially know, fair in the sense that you would come up with basically the same sort, even if you'd done it on a different day. Um, and the same sort would be arrived at, even if it had been done by a different person. Yeah. Uh, so mm. there would be a higher, a much higher degree of inter-rater reliability, as well as the the consistency of yourself over a series of days. So right. I, yeah, that would be a lot better. You're that I've got about 20 thoughts about that. So we're going to need a whole episode to talk about, Oh shoot. Talk about this. And, and it looks like you don't want to have that episode. How, how about but, the, top, but how about the top two thoughts? Well, one thought is that, yeah, I just know that if I had to sort exams into three piles, it would start with three piles. And then inevitably like on the fifth exam, it would go in between two piles. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and then on the tenth exam, it would go in between the in between. Yeah, you know, I, I so would. So you be, might need to go through. There'd be, of course, there'd be border cases, that, but there are border cases with any number of categories. In fact, the number of border cases only goes up as category number. As I would number create. Of I would. I would create the Cantor set of piles. Okay. Mm. All right. Um, <laughs> we normally we talk about feedback. <laughs> uh, we don't have any feedback. Wait, what? Um, we don't have we any got emails. Nothing? We don't have any tweets. What? Nothing, huh? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Do you have any? I feel like there was a Facebook post. Oh, someone. Yeah, there was a Facebook oh, post. Oh, shoot. That's right. Yes. But, um, uh, listener uh, Jenny. Okay. Uh, who was, um, who was entertained, amused, uh, enjoyed some laughter mm-hmm. about a comment I made uh, saying, you know, yeah, the world being better would be better. It was some similarly inane kind of Chauncey Gardner being there type. <laughs> You no, know, Peter was, Sellers observation: right. the world being better would be better. Right. So we've gotten in the past feedback on on Facebook. We and, made we made and, someone's day. But, I, I was going to say Twitter, and this time feedback. I think this is one of our, maybe our second um, feedback on Facebook. We seem to get a little bit more on Twitter, and, and probably most ooh, of it by email. Oral right. argument podcast at gmail dot com. Oral argument podcast at gmail dot com. Or oral argument on Twitter, and I guess oral argument on Facebook as well. Right. So just let us know. Let us know what's going on. Let us know if we madden you, if we entertain you. Let us know if there's a topic you want us right. to talk about. Let us know. Yeah. Just we, let us know. We've gotten constructive criticism before. Absolutely. From straight granny. Yeah. What'd she say again? Less chatter, I think. Something no, that, let that, the guests no, talk no, more. Let the, yeah. yeah. I, she listened to the whole thing and that's one piece of advice. Let the guests talk more, which yeah. is another way of saying shut up. Yeah. Which is, was not, I don't know that that was super constructive. Well, it's like, um, you know, so you guys suck. That's a way of, that's, that's feedback. Yeah. I wonder if that person still was. Anyway, um, <laughs> the, the, the thing I wanted to mention simply because we had talked about it on a number of occasions and it really struck me today um, as I was reading a little news item about the fact that uh, uh, same-sex marriages could proceed as of about noon today in South Carolina, right. given the progress of litigation in, in that state and the Supreme Court's rejection of the request on the part of the South Carolina government for a stay. Um, and the, and Montana yesterday or the day before, um, a similar conclusion reached pursuant to a ninth circuit case that was controlling that area. 
Um, so w- I think we have reached uh, either about 34 or 35 states. Right. Uh, where same-sex marriages are either being performed or about to be performed. What I saw today was that it's only been about seven or eight weeks since the Supreme Court uh, denied review in that batch of cases at the beginning of this term. Uh, And at that time, the number of states in which same-sex marriages were being performed was about 19, Hmm. which means the number of states has about doubled in about eight weeks right, or two months. That's staggering uh, now, because it means the number of marriages right. that are facts on the ground for when the court gets around to, as everyone now thinks it will, reviewing the Sixth Circuit's decision because that created a circuit split. Yeah. Um, and by the way, the private litigants in that case, I think all of them have now shown up at the Supreme Court well in advance of their filing deadline for oh, their wow. petitions okay. for review. Yeah. So so the court could very well hear the case of this term. Yeah. Uh, um, it's done. This issue is done. Well, it's just getting very it's getting very lopsided in terms of the number of states and the amount of population of the United right. States covered in those states. Right. Uh, it's a lot of people. Now, it's going to be a lot of marriages. Right. Now, I'm I'm not. Um, Doesn't mean they can't say uh, in the end, uh, the 14th Amendment. Uh, doesn't require marriage equality. Maybe they w- will say it doesn't require marriage equality. By the way, the state of Michigan's already made it clear, in their opinion, if that happens, those marriages are null and void. That's the state of Mi- I think it was the state of Michigan had a filing that they, right. where they said this. Right. This is our legal assessment is all these marriages will never have been, uh, and that and so that sort of sharpens the what's at stake if sure. if they do have reach that holding, which they may. Two points. One, um, I don't know if you saw a um, friend of the show, Anthony Christ. Yes, I uh, haven't seen him recently, but uh, he um, I, I he your... keeps me informed on all this on Twitter because he's uh, he's he's really good at at um, at kind of he... tweeting the appropriate news and and he found this story today. And I don't have it in front of me um, because my my phone's been confiscated by um, by people in my household right now. Not 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 punitively, Joe. Don't worry. Someone just needed it. I was not in don't, even beginning to worry. Don't worry. Don't worry, Joe. And I was not. Um, yes, my name is still Joe. It hasn't changed in the last You were irritated by that. I still am. <laughs> proceed, Governor. I, <laughs> my name is not Governor. We're going to come to blows. Gov- See, proceed, Governor. It seems early in the show for this to be happening, but really this is at the end of the show. Yeah, because we record this right, after. Proceed, so, Governor. Which means at the beginning of our shows will be maximum irritation with one another. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be kind of weird. Entertaining for the guests. Uh, the yeah. Alike. No, but he he had mentioned on on Twitter that that some some justice of the peace in some county in South Carolina, Lexington County or something like that, had refused to issue marriage certificates despite the ruling of the South Carolina Supreme Court. Mm, interesting. And said he's going to wait for SCOTUS. Yeah, and he's going to wait. Some, for... There are some North Carolina justices of the peace who are resigning. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, oh, the... no, no, that's fine. But no, but, but this is weird though to say I, I'm going to wait for Supreme Court because well, what so... I tweeted back to him is, can you imagine if like litigants before him and said, okay, we, we understand that you've got your ruling here, but I'm really going to wait for the Supreme Court to weigh in on this one. <laughs> like, I don't. Think, you know, the, the that's not Kansas, how it works. Kansas State government is doing something similar. So apparently, under uh, the orders of Governor Brownback, um, the uh, although. Marriages are happening in Kansas under court order. He has instructed all the state agencies that they're not to recognize those marriages in any way. For example, filing of joint tax returns or mm-hmm. anything else um, until there's been a Supreme Court of the United States ruling. So he's what? telling them not to follow. He's telling all the agencies who haven't been ordered directly, I suppose, yeah. 
uh, either through a contempt citation yeah. or some other means. He's telling them to disregard um, the marriages yeah. and the legal proceedings. This goes back to this thing we talked about with, with Anthony on the show. And I think Michael Dorff had a posting that followed up on this a little bit. Um, not followed up on that, but but had something to do with this. And that's, you know, once there has been a ruling for the circuit as to the state itself, and the governor says, don't follow this order, and they don't, like, couldn't there be 1983 liability? I mean, it's like... Yeah, if the, you know, the state's a party. Not to, matter, the not, not to mention contempt. Or, the state's yeah. been subjected, the state's been a party in the case. Right. It's been litigated to judgment. Um, that, you know, yeah, what the, what the heck, guys? This what? is, you, you don't have a good faith basis for believing that you're, that you're following the law. You, you're breaking the law. Now, I'm going to give, uh, I'm going to give uh, Governor Brown back a little, a little piece of legal advice. Um, here's what they should write in the brief, Joe. Now, how long did you say it has taken for the number of states to double? About eight weeks. About eight weeks. To, and how many states now? About 35. 35. So wait for another eight weeks. Okay. And, and um, now I'm not, uh, as you know, Joe, I'm not a geographer. Okay. Okay. But I don't think the number of states is, is going to double again in the next eight <laughs> weeks. And so what Governor Brownback can argue, Joe, yeah. is that the rate Ah, of marriage equality is, is slowing. It's dramatically slow. Dramatically, dramatically, there's been a dramatic slow, slowdown. Dramatically slowed. Dramatic slowdown. And so the trend is clear. Yes. That it's all, Joe, it's all about the second derivative. It's a, it's a, it's a, and that trend <laughs> is a sound rejection <laughs> of marriage right. equality. Right, right. Yeah. What else could explain the slowdown? Yeah. It's, it's I don't, hard to imagine what else could explain it. Exactly. I think we got this one licked. Excellent. Anything else? Uh, Seems like there should be more feedback, but no, let's... No, I think it's time for shotgun aphasia. <laughs> a little preview. On with the show. Joe, we, I think Joe had been in contact with you about maybe um, talking about these uh, Fourth Amendment issues. That sounds like a good topic to talk about. Before we do that, there's a much more important issue, which is how he pronounces his surname. I get everyone's wrong. <laughs> so my guess will, for yours will be Kerr. It's actually, it's actually pronounced Hafar. <laughs> See, I got it wrong. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if you're fans of the band with two brains, but I, I can't help myself. Um, uh, no, it is Kerr, as in fur. Excellent. That's amazing. That's, uh, that'll, that'll never happen again. Now that it's happened once, that will never happen again. Yeah, you got, well, it, right. You got it right last week. I did? Who yeah, was Kalo. Oh, that's Ryan right, Kalo. Kalo. I guess yeah. that right, too. Yeah. Yeah. My, my father actually created the name, shortening it, shortening it from Kierskowski, so he could kind of make it any way he wanted, and that's what he opted for. All right. Really? I like, these are artisanal surnames, hand-fashioned. I like it. <laughs> that's right. Um, I, it makes me think of what I should change mine to. Kierskowski, where, uh, I've never heard that name before. Where is that from? Uh, it's from Poland, um, and uh, my dad came to the States in 1954, and Wanted to Americanize the name. So he went from Arona Kierskowski to Arnold Kerr. Huh. Excellent. Yeah. And, and, and now here you are, Oren Kerr, um, joining us on, I think this is our 42nd episode. So if the number 42 means anything to you, um, you know. Meaning, this, meaning of life. This is the meaning of life. Exactly. <laughs> hey, or, I was a nerd in junior high. I get it. <laughs> or at least the meaning of the Fourth Amendment. Uh, we, maybe we can start there. Oh, yeah. What uh, is the meaning of the Fourth Amendment? I, I had not, you know, I had not run across your, your, um, your article before. And, uh, it's, uh, it, I have to say it kind of resonated with me because I've been interested for a little while now in, in kind of the constellation of 
legal issues, which seem to be at the same time under a kind of threats too strong a word, but but under um, stress um, owing to underlying changes in technology. And and I've been kind of a proponent that that uh, this is kind of similar to the changes wrought by the Industrial Revolution. And at that time, maybe, you know, there too, people, um, th- there were lots of legal doctrines simultaneously under threat because of underlying changes in, in value and labor. Uh, and, and, you know, at, at that time, people probably saw them as discrete issues. Um, but now we kind of see them as, as part of a, in a, a uniform change. And this, this too, I mean, the, the idea of um, privacy from the police seems to be one aspect of a, um, of a similarly kind of massive change. But um, I don't know if you think I'm overstating that, but um, we, we can get into your, the specifics of your kind of Fourth Amendment, non-common law, but evolutionary theory in a, in a minute. But um, I don't know, do you see a similar kind of sea change or, or is that an overstatement, you think? Well, what I think is, is sort of most important to, to take from the idea is that uh, the Fourth Amendment is constantly under technological attack. Um, it's, it's, there's always new ways of investigating cases. There's always new technologies that people are using. And in fact, that article started, um, it came, it sort of a couple different ideas coalesced at the same time, but I had been trying to write an article on the origins of the automobile exception, uh, which is the rule from the 1920s that a car can be searched without a warrant. Uh, probable cause is sufficient, but not a warrant. And, and I started looking at how the lower courts had had been talking about automobiles in the period before the Supreme Court stepped in and sort of announced this new doctrine. And I was just astonished at how they were thinking of cars in ways that people just <laughs> today don't think of it. And they were saying, wow, the, we have this new technology, the automobile, and it is threatening to expand criminality and we have to deal with this new technology. And I thought, well, wait a minute, Car- cars, you know, think back to the 1920s, they were the new technology, right? They had right. just suddenly become ubiquitous uh, and were really changing how crimes were committed and crimes were investigated. And 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 then I started looking into the materials about how the Supreme Court had sort of announced this new rule. And I thought, wow, there's a, there's a really interesting story. They were afraid of the level of government power changing, and then the Supreme Court happens to adopt a rule that that sort of counteracts that. And then, and then actually, I was influenced by um, some fascinating letters that uh, Robert Post had uncovered about uh, letters that uh, Chief Justice Taft had written. It turns out he had written a bunch of letters about the challenge of the automobile to criminal investigations. I think one was to his brother, and some others were to some other people. And and he talked about how we need to come up with a way of solving kind of the automobile problem. And he'd written the decision that followed the Carroll versus United States decision in very originalist terms. You kind of can't get this dynamic. But it's, it's fascinating to see what Taft was really thinking, at least based on these letters. And, and that led me to think, wow, that this is a, it, it's a Fourth Amendment responding to technology problem. And, and, and that's actually what sort of led me to think, well, wait a minute, let me, let me see if I can apply that same framework to other technological problems and other changes in Fourth Amendment doctrine. And once I started sort of saying, okay, I'm going to look for this story, I started to find it like everywhere. Um, <laughs> right. Now, it's, it's possible I was finding it everywhere because I was looking for it and <laughs> I forced myself to find it. But I think really this story uh, can be found in all these different places. And so I suddenly had a totally different article than I had started out with. And what had originated as a history piece on the automobile exception became an article about Fourth Amendment responding to technology generally. Yeah. Before we get to that dynamic, though, what, tell, tell me more about the car. Um, 
is it that what were crimes like on horseback and what in what fundamental ways was the, was the card different um or what do they focus on when they yeah, yeah what, what the courts focused on were that cars could go really fast they all looked alike uh and they had compartments that could store contraband and so you have to think back you know historically the 1920s is not only the automobile it's it's prohibition so folks were distributing illegal alcohol in cars in the backs of cars they would you know put put the the booze in the trunk or hide it in uh at, somewhere else in the car yeah but didn't they have and, trunks and carriages i mean is there's a was there were cars just fundamentally different in their design was it a chance to make a new kind of thing that had i don't know hidden compartments in it that that carriages typically didn't have yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So um, from what I could tell, just thinking, just looking at how the early courts talked about it, they were really struck by first how fast cars were. So, you know, they refer to it, you know, going at the speed of a freight train, sort of the sense <laughs> of like, wow, they could go like, you know, 40 miles an hour, <laughs> right. where, where, whereas a horse it, with a carriage was going, you know, three miles an hour, sort of going walking speed. Yeah. Um, and it would be something you could sort of lift up the tarp on the on the horse and buggy or the, you know, the, the carriage and, and see what was inside. So the idea of a locked compartment going 40 miles an hour was just a total game changer at the time. Uh, so in, in that's, you know, that explains the, the distance crossing jurisdictional lines, that sort of thing that might hamper investigation. I guess the, the other thing you mentioned in passing and in the paper, you, you mentioned it as well. And that really struck me as a, a, a an interesting thing to think about as a change represented by the car is uh, that they all look alike, uh, that there's a uniformity in production that, you know, a horse on a rider, excuse me, a rider on a horse, uh, uh, someone riding in a carriage, you know, the carriages might look different. Um, the horses might look different. They're going slower. So it's easier to see the differences. Um, whereas the car, it's not only going faster, but to the extent they've been made uniform, it really is harder to tell them apart, especially if the, you're unfamiliar with them. Yeah, absolutely. And and especially in the 1920s, when half of the cars on the road were Model T Fords uh, that had been made in the last two or three years. So it, 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 that was a time when um, you know, that was their world, that suddenly crimes could not be enforced any, or criminal laws could not be enforced. So there was a major threat caused by the car, which of course today we think of as just kind of a a background thing. It's not even a technology. It's just kind of part of our world. Well, I don't want to belabor it too much, but I mean, um, I can see the threat to criminal investigation and detection generally posed by the car. But I'm wondering, you know, just with respect to searches, how uniform they are, how fast they go, none of that seems particularly relevant to the question of police search powers um, to me, unless I'm missing something. Well, the the big problem was that at the time the understanding was that a search required a warrant. So, oh, I, yeah, and and then there was a, first there, there were two questions. First, when can you stop a car? Yeah, and then when can you search the car? And if so, it wasn't clear you could stop the car without some sort of authority, <laughs> and then you couldn't search the car without authority, and then it became kind of well, if you can't stop the car and search the car without a warrant, how are you ever going to get the warrant because the car is going to drive away? And, and so they just were totally befuddled as to what the rules were going to be. And a person on horseback just can't get too far by the time you get the warrant. I mean, you know, they're going to, they'll still be in the same County by the time you get the warrant or something like that. Yeah. It's a great question. One thing I was never able to really satisfactorily figure out is how did they investigate crimes involving 
you know, people on, on horses. Or, yeah, right. But carriage. I looked. I looked through all the historical materials for any of these cases, and and it's entirely possible it just never came up because there had been no federal agents, mm. and this was at a time when the Fourth Amendment only applied to the federal government. Yeah, right? hadn't been incorporated. Um, yeah, it hadn't been incorporated. So at the state level, my guess is just police officers just would go up to the person on horse horseback and say stop and then they'd search them and nobody ever stopped to sort of say wait a minute how how should the rules apply because the fourth amendment you know at the local level was not was not something that did you uh, look did you look for state search and seizure cases or is that like work yet to be done uh i looked and i couldn't find anything i mean it, it may just be something as simple as um it may be there are cases out there that the you know the kind of keywords that you'd look for today are different are from, different yeah. Sort of, yeah i don't i don't know i I spent some time on it and ultimately just could, it came up empty. I think it may be Back to the Future 3 that could cover this possibility because that's when he goes back to, you know, the 1800s. That's, but, there is no Back to the – there was only one Back to the Future movie. <laughs> but um, but uh, another thing you mentioned in passing a few minutes ago, Oren, was this idea when cars are being compared to trains, right, move as fast as a train. Uh, I, I have a feeling I may know the answer based on what you just said uh, about about uh, pre-car uh, – searches but um i suppose the train itself could have represented a similar technological change right trains they also move very fast uh we went through a technological revolution with the wide availability of train travel uh at prices many many people could afford uh they have large uh you know they can carry large and heavy things uh great distances in relatively short am- amounts of time so was there any did anything happen as a result of the train uh, that relates to this sort of investigation or criminality? I I don't think so. I couldn't find anything. It, it may be helpful to to go back to the postal service cases. So in in probably the, the first Fourth Amendment case, I guess it was in the eighteen seventies, uh, ex parte Jackson, the Supreme Court had said in total dicta, they just sort of reached out and talked about this stuff, but uh, that that first class packages that were sealed from uh, uh, postal service access were protected by the Fourth Amendment, uh, but that the outsides of packages and packages that were sort of allowed to be opened um, were not protected, and so. I, I would think that it would be pretty much the same rule on on trains than it was sort of you know in any in any other context, and it, it's sort of it, weird to think about it now. But at least in the 19th century and early 20th century, you, you kind of had to have a very special class of letter, the first class letter, which was not subject to inspection by the government. Um, so that would be like a sealed letter that was sort of you know special you paid extra postage to get the non-inspectable version and <laughs> most most packages could be inspected and and i, I also i think I, I thinking back to this article i think it wasn't until i think 1912 that you could even send a sort of decent sized package through the mail the mail is basically just just for letters at the time so so the whole idea of kind of having privacy in things over long distances was relatively novel at the time. And so when the car comes along and anybody can just sort of put the booze in the trunk of the Model T and head off at 40 miles an hour, that's pretty new. <laughs> seems, yeah, it seems dramatically different. Well, that's interesting to know that in terms of the Postal Service, people were actually, one of the things they could have been signaling by buying the first class letter was, I'm more interested in my privacy. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's right. And the, the, the cases the, the cases it's interesting going back to like, you know, early 
20th century, late 19th century cases, you'd have sort of um, crimes involving sending lottery tickets through the mail and you'd have sort of, it, they were exposed. So it was just, you know, the, the tickets would be sort of open to inspection. So that's how the government would catch them. Mm. All right. So, you know, so one, er- one thing about um, this area of the law uh, and that this example brings up nicely is that if, if you ever had a strong desire for a kind of constitutional rule of search and seizure that would be very rule-like and, and not, you know, either standard-like or principle-like, you're not going to do a good job, right? Because technology, because technology is changing so fast and, and you have a whole bunch of scenarios in the paper, which I think are really interesting. This area of the law is kind of inevitably going to have to evolve in some way. And whether it evolves consistent with some enduring principle or set of principles or whether it evolves in a common law way, um, it, it just seems to me that, you know, um, you know, even the language in the Constitution itself, you know, reasonableness for searches and seizures uh, contemplates from the very beginning that this will inevitably have to be um, a flexible area of law because um, I assume at the time of the framing that they'd seen changes in crime and detection um, in their own lifetimes. Well, I, I don't think things change that quickly. So, you know, the, the basic rules of search warrant needed to enter a home, you know, the, the basic idea of a home is pretty constant. And the automobile exception is, is now 90 years old. So that hasn't changed in, in 90 years. So, so I think things do stick around for, for a pretty long time. It's, it's sort of specific problems that end up, um, you know, really fast changing technologies that become kind of game changers and, you know, the, I think the computer is, is going to be one of them, as the Riley, recent Riley case suggests. Yeah. Um, so, some areas are going to change a lot, stays pretty constant over time. Um, uh, and and, um, and so kind of think maybe it just depends on, on which area you're looking at. Well, no, I was just thinking that, um, you know, wh- whether it's a matter of kind of, you know, kind of punctuated equilibrium or, or something else that, uh, you know, as even in a given area, as, as you have denser cities and different kinds of uh, businesses and um, and and new kinds of crimes, as you allude to in the paper, I, I would assume even in a I hate to say non technological age, but in a in a pre digital age, I, I would assume even then that there were kind of constantly new problems to be dealt with in just a, adjudicating how far the police can go in prying into private affairs. Um, but I, I don't. That's I, right. Yeah, I don't have I don't have ready made examples at, at hand to to say that, but it it seems right. But. I think you get a lot of path dependence as a result of that too, because of course the Supreme Court is reluctant to overturn a prior decision, so you end up with kind of um, you just an example comes to mind. So you have Fourth Amendment protection in your home, but then you start seeing a lot of undercover investigations in the cases like in the twenties, thirties, forties. And so the Supreme Court says, okay, you have Fourth Amendment rights in your home, except if you invite in. Uh, an undercover agent, then you kind of lose that protection to the extent you've spoken to the undercover agent. So that those cases end up being about undercover agents as a special category instead of about privacy in the home. Right. Uh, so you have kind of the home rules get fixed, but then you have a special sort of factual variation that develops its own category. And then you start getting sort of the wiretapping cases, which kind of become a version of the undercover agent cases. And so a lot actually stays fixed, but whatever is sort of the new category that gets opened, I think that's where the court ends up sort of playing with the equilibrium adjustment idea more, more often than sort of going back to the first principles. Yeah, maybe just to get the equilibrium adjustment idea to let people know what it is. Let me 
let me try out a, like a different theory on you and you kind of tell me like what's wrong with it and, and why equilibrium adjustment is better. Because, uh, you know, if I take a, I was listening to this podcast with uh, Richard Posner talking to the um, Empirical Legal Studies Conference. Was that what it was, Joe? Yeah. And it, it, about basically how academics and even lawyers don't understand judges. And, and he has this kind of theory of judging, which is, you know, very pragmatic as, as you would expect. Um, but if what judges are doing in individual cases, including Supreme Court justices, is basically aiming at what seems to them a reasonable outcome in any given case, right? Uh, you know, there's some consistency with doctrine over time, but especially in novel cases where the doctrine doesn't seem to provide a complete answer, judges are basically looking to do something reasonable. And if that's what they're doing, then 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 maybe the story of the doctrine is is a kind of a, a post hoc interpolation of the cases that can kind of make sense of them in 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 language that can be used to justify what's happened up until up until now. And if that's the case, then you then I, I guess that would kind of chart a common law type evolution. And we we can talk about like the efficiency of the common law and 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 these sorts of things and how they might apply in this area. But I take it that you disagree with that, that you don't think that there's kind of an unmoored reasonableness inquiry that that is leading the law to in new directions based on new conceptions of reasonableness and new cases, um, uh, you know, in, in this kind of common law manner. Um, you, you think something quite different, I think. Well, I mean, and I gather we're talking just about in the Fourth Amendment setting. Or yeah, saying, yeah, in let's all, see, in all settings. Yeah, because in the in the paper you mentioned the Commerce Clause is a very different has a very different dynamic going on, right? Yeah, so so let's just just focus on the Fourth Amendment. I think that description is is roughly right, uh, and that what equilibrium adjustment is is sort of it's the analytic framework that the judges may be sort of intuitively following. So, an example let, let's take the the Riley case. So, as as some listeners may know the Supreme Court recently said the government needs a search warrant to search a cell phone incident to arrest because cell phones have so much more information uh, than people used to be carrying. You know, the, the government can search uh, a person without a warrant but needs a warrant for the cell phone, so special rules for cell phones. You can explain that um, as just an intuition that judges said, wow, these cell phones sure have a lot of stuff on them. I don't want the government searching them all the time. So that's right. like the, the intuitive version. Uh, or you can sort of have the more equ- the equilibrium adjustment version of this, which is, um, you know, in searches under the old rule became so much more invasive because of technological change. So the court adopted a more restrictive rule to restore the prior balance of government power. I, you can express that, I think, in two different ways. So, so maybe a, one, one way of thinking about the equilibrium adjustment idea is it's a sort of the it explains that sort of let's do reasonable things intuition right? Um, in, in a way that explains what I'm trying to do in the paper, say basically that Fourth Amendment doctrine evolves in this actually somewhat predictable way. Yeah. Um, you, you can kind of look at technological change and think, okay, I think the rules are going to evolve in the following way. And, and part of what I was doing in that article, um, my, my secret agenda of that, of that article <laughs> is um, – you know, I'm, I'm I'm particularly interested in the rules governing search and seizure of computers and digital evidence, and so my view going back was that that was going to require some sort of new set of rules, and the equilibrium adjustment paper is kind of the the way of saying, okay, we we should feel comfortable creating new rules for computer searches because this is what the courts traditionally do. 
Like th- this idea of coming up with new rules, it's not like a crazy break from the past. This is actually the consistent practice. Right. Uh, and and I, I interpret Riley as sort of taking saying, okay, let's let's create new rules for digital searches because they are so different. Um, and and I think it's good that they're comfortable with that notion. They they have to do it carefully. It's not like they should just you know come up with a bunch of new rules willy nilly. But but that that um, instinct of let's create reasonable rules in the Fourth Amendment setting specifically, I think is a really common one because the notion of the government having too much power or too little power is sort of intuitively scary to a lot of people. We can It's not hard to come up with really bad situations we'd have if the government could just, you know, invade everyone's privacy with it, it, it really dramatically with no cause or if they couldn't investigate or solve any cases at all. So, yeah, I, mean, yeah. so I think that intuition is actually a lot of what's driving this. Well, but I, I had taken the, the equilibrium point to be about um, adherence to principle, that, that, that yes, judges are making reasonable um, judgments in cases that, you know, Maybe maybe the framers or or the reframers never could have considered, but uh, regardless, these are new kinds of cases, and they, and they're making reasonable judgments, but they're doing so based on uh, an adherence to a principle about public private uh, about the public private balance uh, or the state individual balance, and, and that that principle is kind of enduring, and that and that that distinguishes your method from a pure common law method in which both you, you in which you can evolve not only the expression of principles but, but the, the principles, principles themselves. themselves. Yeah. yeah, right, right. And 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 to be clear, I, I I think that courts end up following that principle because there is this sort of intuitive sense that a balance is important in this area. I I don't think that they're sort of consciously saying. I'm going to follow this principle and, and, you know, I'm maintaining fidelity to this principle. I, I think they are, but what, what, what struck me as kind of really interesting about the, the whole idea of equilibrium adjustment is how judges and justices from totally different interpretive traditions all sort of coalesced along this idea. And an example I think is Riley. Riley is a 9-0 decision, um, and you get the textualists and the originalists and you get the pragmatists. They all sort of come aboard. Uh, and it's because I, you know, all the different theories sort of all can agree on that equilibrium adjustment idea. So I, I don't think justices have in the past been really self-conscious about this. I think they are kind of acting intuitively, but that when you put all those intuitions together, you actually can see in the Fourth Amendment setting this consistent pattern of evolution in the law in response to technological change. Yeah, and part of it, you got the Constitution itself with the word "reasonable" in there, and. Uh... And and that kind of you know so for a textualist it's a license to be a little bit more like a you know a, a Briar Active Liberty type right I mean you the word reasonableness is right there in the Constitution and so it's basically saying you know be a common law constitutionalist and and come to to reasonable um, answers but there, there there's some of that although the 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 theory applies equally well to the definition of searches definition of seizures sort of you know there's a lot more to the Fourth Amendment than just the reasonableness prong so it, it covers kind of all the bases. I like too that the there's this idea of the year zero that you use in the paper that it it almost has like a uh almost has like a biological feel to it like there's this uh the word used before Christian of balance like there's this privacy set point uh in the body politic and there was a you know early in our history as a country that that sort of establishes a set point and that and that set point can have moved but the fact that it exists, the fact that it has weight and that people try to return to it, 
when they've been deflected off of it in some noticeable way based on a technological change. I don't know. It seems it seems uh, like it takes the notion of principle and using a principle that you keep implementing over time and makes it a little bit less abstract. Makes yeah, it, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad it, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad my gambit worked. I mean, I'm glad the uh, idea worked. Yeah. You know, I, I actually, the, the idea of the year zero kind of method, a lot, a lot of that was just, just because if my whole idea was that all these old um, technologies or, or, you know, the automobile, for example, were the technologies of the day, I had to sort of go to a pre-automobile era to kind of start the theory. Um, so that's why I ended up using the year zero idea as a sort of, you know, all of these things are all technologies. This is a constant dynamic, whether it's the 1920s, they had, you know, the telephone and the automobile or 2015 when we're dealing with, you know, uh, uh, computers and GPS devices and cell site tracking and everything. So every era has its version of this problem. That's kind of why I went. So does it ever, do we ever get to a point where we have to say, you know what, we need, we need a more fundamental reexamination. We've been, uh, we've been making these adjustments uh, in response to some technology, uh, but, but things have gotten so, uh, things have become so changed uh, that, uh, making these sort of adjustments back to a center no longer gets us to where we want to be. We need to have a new year zero. We need to rethink the set point. Does that ever make? Does that ever make sense? Do you uh, get to have that moment over again, or do you just have to keep using? Is it in the nature of this uh, this kind of methodology that it's that it never you never get to go back to year zero? I mean, as I, I think as a practical matter, you never go back to year zero unless you have some sort of constitutional amendment forcing or forcing some new standard, um, because the Fourth Amendment covers just an incredible array of different fact patterns. I mean, it's just astonishing to think about how many things are regulated in pretty specific rules un uh, under Fourth Amendment case law, and so. To kind of start from scratch, you'd need to you'd need to answer everything all over again, um, and and that would be a truly extraordinary challenge to kind of begin again and try to figure out from first principles what should be protected and how and and doing that I think would be really hard and and this I think brings up another problem when talking about Fourth Amendment laws I, I think of this body of laws one that at the practical level is actually pretty well defined. Um, it's at the theoretical level where it gets tricky. Um, so, you know, you get a lot of sort of theoretical disagreements about what the law should be doing. And, it, you know, there are hundreds of articles saying the reasonable expectation of privacy test is incoherent and should be rethought and something else should replace it. But that's sort of the what I've you know, what I've referred to as as, um, as the principles layer of doctrine, kind of what is the, the test. Uh, but at the application layer, what are the rules? It's actually pretty certain, you know, some things are protected, some things are not protected and, and protected how. And it kind of works pretty well, I think. It, and, and maybe an analogy I would draw is it's kind of like um, it's kind of like a market economy. Like there are things you might want to tailor, um, but it all kind of actually works in a certain way in the sense that you wouldn't want to sort of stop and say, OK, we've got to rethink this entire thing. You, you can sort of tinkle with it, tinker with it more effectively than than starting from scratch. I mean, it's a little different because obviously the Fourth Amendment is it's it is by nature a government enforced rule. Um, but but whenever I, I hear, you know, a lot of people will say we need to rethink the Fourth Amendment. 
I, I always sort of imagine like, okay, I can think of like a thousand different <laughs> basic fact patterns. What are your answers going to be for those fact patterns? And usually the response I'll get is something along the lines of, well, I don't want to change those. I really just want to change these. Right. Like, Aha. It's, it's, it's not a grand rethinking. It's a specific. Well, the Fourth of- Amendment is kind of interesting in that it it's a it's a set it, it, it generates a set of very practical regulations on a whole whole bunch of cops all around the country and you know you know we i guess all, you know all of us who teach at public universities are regulated by the constitution to some extent but nothing like police officers who are you know in their day-to-day business are kind of at really working at the receiving end of a lot of kind of constitutional rulemaking and subject to uh, liability so in that sense you know maybe it it make it, it one of the virtues of any fourth amendment jurisprudence whatever it might be is that there is a set of rules that governs right that it is you know, that you can actually teach it in a seminar to um um you know in a police academy and that people will know for most situations what the rules are i right. mean that that's a tremendous virtue it seems to me i think that's right um but you know i I, I, I want to push back a little bit more on the uh, on the on the common law idea too, though. That um, you know, so on on the on the theory side, what is it that kind of maintains this center or this equilibrium in in Fourth Amendment? And I'm wondering how much work the equilibrium idea is doing. Um, so maybe to tee this up, um, is this an area? as to which there's an unusual level of consensus for reasons which might be interesting, we might want to talk about among various uh, theorists and, and, and politicians and others. I mean, just there's an unusual level of consensus about the right balance. And so the common law method doesn't create much wandering from that center. I mean, that's one possible explanation. Another is that this is an area where there's an unusual level of desire to adhere to principle and maybe even original principle. And, and maybe that has something to do with history and the kinds of stories we tell about um, uh, police encroachment or about King George or whatever it is. Uh, is it something like that? Or is this an area where the, the, the last explanation you gave might also work too? And that's, the, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a set of principles which have an enormous number of rules that have come out as consequences and to tinker with the principles works vast changes in in, in many areas uh, in, in in many rules that govern on a day-to-day basis and so the level of disruption from changing the law much here uh, would be huge um, so that, that's three possible explanations and I I don't know do you favor one of those I, I guess I'm of the three the third I think is the most likely I mean in terms of trying to figure out scholarly consensus i mean it's tricky in the fourth amendment area i think the the scholars are by and large more privacy oriented and less law enforcement oriented than the mean uh, median supreme court justice yeah uh so the the criticisms and the law reviews are you know a, a very common criticism is that they did not take privacy seriously enough they were too deferential to law enforcement and so so I would say that the scholarly perspectives are very often critical for striking the wrong balance. Um, and it, it may be that, you know, 
if, if ultimately the sort of intuitions here boil down to what the swing justice on the Supreme Court thinks, so maybe, you know, that's Kennedy or O'Connor or um, in an earlier day, Powell or whoever, you know, was the, the media justice in some prior time, uh, maybe that hasn't changed all that much over time, or maybe that sort of accurately represents some sort of centrist sense of the public um, of, of what's sort of a reasonable call. Um, I, I think, though, a lot of this, a lot of like, maybe maybe we can think about it just in a in a in a sort of basic sense something like this. So let's say you were trying to come up with a rule for when the police could arrest someone and bring them into police custody, um, and for for to to face charges for a criminal offense, and 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 understanding that arresting the person would mean searching them, um, incident to that arrest, and and you know some right. pretty embarrassing serious consequences not a small deal to arrest someone when would you want mugshots and all that yeah mugshots of the whole when would you want the police to be allowed to arrest someone so no one would defend the idea that there should be no limits on the arrest power right so that everyone sort of gets like that would be crazy yeah um, that would that would mean that the police could just harass anyone they wanted they could pick somebody who they didn't like uh and just arrest them just for the heck of it that'd be fine and, and, you know, if it's like a, a teeny amount of evidence or reasonable suspicion, I think people, again, kind of think, wow, that's, that's really troubling because it gives the police so much power. And, and also people would not want a rule where the government could not arrest unless, say, there was proof beyond a reasonable doubt that they committed the offense. You know, they, they had right. to have overwhelming evidence and, and no doubt about it because then they're letting all the bad guys get away, um, even when they're pretty sure that the person committed a crime. And that sort of means that we all kind of share this t- intuition that something kind of like probable cause is the right standard. And we can disagree on exactly where the probable cause line is, but I think there's actually kind of a, a, a surprisingly widely shared intuition, at least in, in specific cases, that something in that ballpark is about right. And then the Supreme Court figures out exactly where the line is and you know, that's where the, the votes go where they go with then equilibrium adjustment sort of being the backstop for when people think, wow, these rules have actually kind of gotten out of whack. Then the court can come along in a different fact pattern and say, you know, we tighten the rules here or we loosen the rules there in light of kind of the accumulation of all the other rules or some technological change. So, so there's sort of, you know, when you combine the shared intuition that a lot of people have with this sort of common law sense of the judging, I think it kind of ends up being a system that roughly works over time. You just get this sort of multi-layered, sort of incredibly fact-specific cases over decades and decades that just drives the scholars batty because there's so many cases to try to figure out what the, the rules are, but that's actually pretty practically okay for a cop trying to figure out what to do. Yeah, I'm wondering if the... Uh... Uh, go ahead, Joe. Yeah, yeah, I just think the history. So that answer makes me think that the history is actually playing a really important role, uh, that the history and the way the culture carries the history forward, because I, I very much am in tune with. But of course, I would be right, because like you, I grew up here and this is my culture. Uh, but I'm very much in tune with this idea that uh, the notion of having no constraint on the police sounds terrifying. Um, and the idea of of having uh, complete restraint on the police sounds equally terrifying because uh, in the one is, uh, you know, uh, totalitarianism and the other is anarchy. And both of those sound pretty bad. Uh, but um, I imagine that there could be in a, in a different uh, time and place with a different set of historical experiences that I wouldn't leap to either of those alternatives nearly as quickly. 
right? Depending on the fact. So if if I'm if I'm uh, if it's five years after we've finally gotten over a civil war where there was huge amounts of anarchy, right? Um, maybe only lightly restraining the police doesn't sound like such a bad idea. Uh, because we're finally getting civil society up and running again, and there's a, a, a and it's a larger project to get things sort of hang back together and to proceed in a peaceful way. Um, contrarywise, maybe if we're just sort of getting out from totalitarianism, uh, having the police be heavily, heavily constrained, maybe that doesn't sound so bad, right? If it's East Germany and it's 1990, and my recollection is of Stasi. Maybe, maybe I think actually sending police through a very rigorous procedure before they do something it sounds pretty good, right? So it sounds like history actually is embedded in your answer. It because that's our history. The story you told is our culture. Yeah, it's it's a great question, and and I'm I'm actually not sure of how much our history is 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 playing in this. And in part, that's because when I've looked at the criminal procedure rules at other countries, to the extent I've been able to follow them when they've been in English, um, it's it's usually pretty similar uh, to U.S. law. Same sort of basic standards for arrests, same sort of basic standards for a warrant. Every major country also has some sort of a warrant authority and exceptions to the warrant authority. The, the characteristics of the U.S. legal system are actually r- roughly similar to other countries. And, and th- there are certainly variations in one of them uh, Jacqueline Ross at Illinois has written about this really interestingly, is, is that so in U.S. law, we heavily regulate wiretapping, but we don't regulate undercover investigations. In Germany, they do the opposite. So they are pretty loose about wiretapping, but they strongly regulate undercover investigations. And that latter, you can understand, is a response to the Nazi Stasi sort of past, but in some way, wiretapping and undercover investigations are kind of substitutes for each other. They're ways of breaking into conspiracy offenses. Right. Uh, and so so there actually may be some sort of just common, I don't want to say sort of a, a human nature of criminal procedure, but um, the, the, the problems that each country is facing are, are roughly similar. And it may be we all sort of get kind of similar answers, um, at least at a rough level, be, because we all are encountering that same problem. You have in mind like two, two ways of understanding like human nature when it comes to crime and detection. And I mean, one of them is like, you know, like John McHale's study of uh, trolley problems and, and how uh, the idea that there's a universal moral grammar, uh, you know, that maybe if you surveyed people under the right settings, you would find that, that they have a common approach to the line between uh, uh, criminal investigation and privacy uh, in the same way that they have similar responses to to trolley problems, uh, but then the, the the other view is that um, that you know while countries have different histories, they have had a lot of the same bad histories and good histories uh, in in different measure and with slightly different valences. Uh, but that you have kind of what I, what what I might characterize as kind of like long um, what's the right word like long wave carrier signals and then shortwave carrier signals kind of like so you have these these large signals that come from you know i don't know the struggle against king george or the struggle against uh fascism or or the uh or or a terrible like uh, uh um criminal um, maybe large scale terror event that could have been disrupted with better investigation and the, these are like huge you know big signals in history that that influence um 
attitudes and 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 maybe uh, statutory structures that are set up and 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 um, and and appreciation of principles about investigation. But then, so too, you know, people are gonna, you know, there's gonna be this kind of short wave cycling that goes on as people become more or less concerned about crime. That you know, just like the typical shifting of the political winds. Um, sometimes people are more worried about crime than others, and there's not there's not always a good way to explain why. And when and when and when the electorate is at a is at a high anti crime um, uh, fever pitch, then you tend to get either more law and order types appointed to the bench, or you get more law and order type rulings, or you get statute. So maybe both of those things are going on, and it may be hard to disentangle. Uh, the contributions of both, but um, but of course I could be all wrong about this, and it may well be that there could be uh, some kind of fixed idea of of human freedom that people have that causes them to kind of revert to the mean uh, between keeping them safe and uh, through criminal investigation and keeping them uh, whole and autonomous through right. privacy restrictions. I don't know how to think about that, but I don't know. Well, it's interesting yeah. too that our history shows that we've been we've been obsessing on this problem for a long time. <laughs> that we we keep having the conversation about the issue, we, even if the way we resolve it changes. Yeah, I, I would think since the earliest days, like you know. W- so that in itself is an indication that there's something something about this is baked into the human cake, as it were. Yeah, and and, and is it that different? I mean, to go back to the. Uh, to the Commerce Clause, Oren. I mean, and, and it's, I mean, part of what I read in the piece was an attempt to distinguish this oscillation that you know that Joe's talking about, whether it's historically late or not. But the, this oscillation, or um, minor oscillation, but adherence to a basic compromise, but as refracted through the lens of emerging technologies and problems, uh, that, that that somehow is really different than what's going on with I don't know the evolution of the commer- or, or of congressional power in general. Or maybe other constitutional doctrines, maybe the First Amendment. I don't know if there's a a, a a course to be charted there that that responds to large scale historical movements where the underlying principles change, or if you think the process of constitutional change there is somehow similar. Yeah. So, so my sense is that the the sort of police investigations dynamic is one that's more kind of a timeless problem that ends up being solved in similar. With that, with that same rough balance in mind over time, it, it, it's worth pointing out that the idea of police investigations and professional government-employed officers who are, whose job it is to investigate crimes is really a 19th century idea, uh, mid-19th century idea, not one that really goes back to the framing. So even though we have these sort of common law era rules on arrests and searches, it was a very different world that that, that was dealing with than than the world today it's just, it's just just times have dramatically changed in terms of the kinds of things that the fourth amendment is regulating regulating um but i do think what makes this sort of an interesting problem is that we're dealing with similar efforts to solve different problems as compared to other areas of sort of what we think of as kind of common law decision making where the rules and the, the sort of thought process and sort of sense of the understanding of the doctrine is totally different today than it was before. And I guess in the paper I used commerce clause. I think I talk about uh, abortion and sort of right to privacy yeah, uh, yeah. issues where, you know, we don't say that Roe v. Wade is an effort to apply, you know, uh, 19th century concepts to to sort of modern facts or something. We more sort of say, OK, here is a principle that the the Supreme Court announced 
whether you agree with it or not, like it is a principle that is not sort of an effort to achieve some prior balance. It is sort of a new, a new thing. So uh, in that sense, I think I, I, I think in the criminal procedure context that it just, it's, it's fascinating because it is this recurring problem. It is this sort of constant issue, which, you know, explain some of the it, it's partially why the framers enacted the fourth amendment this response to abuses of the english king in the 18th century and before uh and and it's just sort of this common problem that gets dealt with over time so maybe there i have maybe two more things i want to talk about <laughs> one of them is uh do you know what one of them is joe no hmm Maybe speed traps, but number no, the the one of the things though <laughs> we haven't talked about speed no, traps. No, we haven't. In a but this is the perfect time. this is the perfect uh, episode for it. But uh, uh, my forthcoming article, the jurisprudence of speed traps, is perfect for this. Uh, oh, if you 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 may not have listened to the we need original to episodes. On that draft. Yeah, oh, absolutely. We we are the. <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but we are the the world's leading podcast authority on speed trap law. Oh, I, I'm glad I came to the right place. Oh, we, we've, we've done the research. There are cases as, as we have said before, and we've cited it, um, citing Immanuel Kant, uh, to resolve a speed trap dilemma case. So we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. But, but first I wanted to maybe talk just a little bit about Riley and, and whether we, whether Riley disrupts this paradigm, um, or, uh, or it's uh, continuous with the um, with this kind of the, the 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 principle of constitutional change that we with, to which we've become accustomed with the Fourth Amendment um, because it is in a way quite sweeping or potentially sweeping, right? Um, it's well, I mean, it, it's it's certainly suggests a new approach for digital evidence cases. I think that's right. Yeah, well, I I, I say that because. Um, I mean, people are just going to people have been and, and will continue to store more and more stuff on a phone. Right. And and fewer and fewer things on scraps of paper and wallets. And um, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't want to overstate it because, you know, the rule in, in Riley is you got to get a warrant to search the phone. Right. And the warrant is the the backstop anyway uh, um, for, for most things. And so it's not like the police can't get to the phone. That's not the holding in Riley. The holding in Riley is that you you have to get a warrant to search the phone. Now, in the old case of the 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 packet in the pocket, right? The the uh, and I don't remember the case names because I don't teach in this area. But the 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 sort of the search incident to arrest, uh, and you you know you have the pat down, and they take the packet out of the guy's pocket, and they open the packet, right? So right. and inside the packet there are some heroin capsules or what have you. Um, the I, I guess you could say you know, well, why did they open the packet when it's, when they see that it's a packet, they know there's nothing in there that, you know, there's not like a gun in there. Uh, it's a little packet. So why did they need to open the packet? Why was that? Okay. So let's uncomputer it for a minute with incident. This is, this is the exception. So normally you get a warrant and, and, and that was, uh, that came in under the exception that you, you don't need a warrant so long as it's, uh, the search is incident to an arrest. And, yeah, and it's right. a valid arrest. Uh, right. Maybe they see it looks like the guy's in the middle of a crime. Yeah. So they arrest the guy. They pat him down. There's a packet. Uh, there's something in his pocket. They take the something out. The something is a, sort of a wrapped up square of paper. Why is it okay to open up the wrapped up square of paper? You know, they put the officer on the stand in that case and asked him why he had opened it. It was a crumpled cigarette package. And he said, I don't know. It's just what I do. <laughs> so, so I mean, that was that was the issue, kind of how much of a bright line rule do you want to allow searches incident to arrest versus 
case-by-case litigation of what is reasonable in that context in light of kind of the the purposes served by the search incident to arrest exception. Um, so so I, I think what's significant about the Riley case is ultimately it's saying the dynamic of computer searches are so different than the dynamic of physical searches that we need to come up with a different rule to respond to the nature of, of these sort of new new kinds of searches. So I see it as kind of a as, as classic equilibrium adjustment. It's kind of techn- technology has changed. Old rule no longer serves the function that it did when it was created. Therefore, we come up with a new rule uh, to respond to that technological change. Because yeah. it would justify an alarmingly intrusive, if the police could simply search into your phone, as they did in, bo- in both the Riley and the companion case, it would, it would, um, the equilibrium would be disturbed by by uh, throwing us into an alarmingly intrusive regime. Is that right. the, okay? Yeah, I mean because they would be able to learn everything about you, right? I, I mean, yeah, because right. your phone data is an is right. a, is an enormously right. um, uh, a large treasure trove of data with slips of paper in your pocket. They, you know, I guess the idea is you learn something about someone. And regardless of the justification, I I had thought that the justification in the in in that case had been spoliation of evidence, right? That you you want to look oh, at something. Opening before. the crumpled I, cigarette. I don't know. Pack. Maybe I'm wrong about that, Oren. You can correct me, but um, but I think the real idea is there's only so much stuff you have in your pockets, and it says, you know, it's like you can look at that stuff because it may be have something to do with what the person was up to that day. It says something about what's happening right now, yeah. but it isn't the same as. I mean, to me, the you best know, reason is you need to make sure there's not a weapon in there. Yeah, of course. And that's one. I think there, my understanding, Oren, is that there are two grounds, basically. Like, it's officer safety and, and worrying about spoiling evidence. There was officer safety, worrying about spoiling evidence, and then also some um, cases had talked about just gathering evidence of the crime of the offense. The, yeah, right, um, right. Ah, okay. And so maybe, whatever they're in the middle of, you, you there might be evidence of what they were just in the middle of. They might have someone's phone number written down on yeah. a piece of paper. That makes but, sense. But it doesn't include like, you know, letters to, I don't know, a paramour or something like that, yeah. you know. Or, Although but, it makes it awfully important to know why the person got stopped, too. You can tell I don't teach in this area. This all sounds very interesting to me, even <laughs> though it's very pedestrian. But I, it, 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 given that you get to do this when you stop somebody, it makes it kind of important that you have a good reason to stop them. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh well. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm just having these. I'm having these little epiphanies over here. That's all. Well, I, so th- that the reason I, I brought this up, I think it's an interesting case because it, you know, I think you wrote a little bit about its connection with the mosaic theory. We don't necessarily need to go into the mosaic theory right now, but the um, to me, it's interesting because to the extent more and more things go into that phone. You know, the phone doesn't just represent a greater opportunity for invasions of privacy. It also represents all the other things you wrote about, like it, it greater opportunities for countermeasures, new kinds of crimes, um, uh, you know, greater opportunity uh, of of the police to pro- all these things happen with the phone, right? And, right. And 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 it seems to me that the equilibrium had been established by, I don't know, maybe letting different sides of this debate have little wins in a bunch of different kinds of scenarios but once the phone is off limits it's off limits uh now of course you can still get a warrant and and so maybe the way that this thing evolves is not by um charting an equilibrium as to what you can do without a warrant but making warrants easier and easier and faster and faster to get right i mean that's another bit of hydraulic pressure in these cases is the you know to the extent you need a warrant for things that people think are really important to get 
immediately, I, I would imagine that the that there will be a way that warrants will issue nearly automatically and quite quickly. Well, it, it's not it's not clear to me that the warrant process really changes or, or, or is going to change that much. I mean, I, I think when so certainly the the police are allowed to secure the phone right when they when they incident to arrest that both sides agreed with that in yeah. in Riley. So the government's going to have the phone in custody, and the question is, does it need a warrant to? search the phone. And then it, it, it's really that particularity is not going to be a big issue. It's just probable cause. What's the reason to think that there's evidence of the crime related to the, uh, uh, on the phone that I think is going to be, it's going to be re- a really interesting question to see how courts construe that kind of question over time, because you could say, um, let's say it's a narcotics case and the person is arrested of narcotics trafficking or something like that. Well, there, you know, people have evidence of, on their phone of who they're texting. And so there's probably evidence relating to narco- narcotic trafficking on the phone. And then you have to think of what are the cases where there wouldn't be evidence on the phone. You know, and and it, it may just depend on what apps people have on their phone. Like say it's a speeding mm. case. Maybe they had a, a speedometer app on their <laughs> phone that has a maximum speed uh, and sort of a history of their speed. And so maybe there's evidence relating to the crime of speeding 60 and a 55 on the phone. So so there is an interesting question of how easier or harder warrants going to be. But uh, another a, a related point I want to draw out a little bit is the way I think of the equilibrium adjustment occurring, at least, is it's the nature of Supreme Court decision making is they only handle a specific factual variation at a time or a specific document at a time. So you can have, you know, you've got this web of various rules and most of them stay unaddressed for, you know, years, if not decades. And then the court will have one specific factual variation and you get kind of a path dependence issue in terms of how the court applies equilibrium adjustment. In Riley, for example, they're just looking at search incident to arrest and what's the impact of that one doctrine on the overall level of of police power. And when you start talking about a world where almost everybody is carrying a phone and most phones are smartphones, the effect of the old rule suddenly becomes a really big deal. So you have the court change the rule in that specific setting, but not change the rule in any other setting, at least yet. And so it, it, you know, that one, I, I think what practically probably happens is just that you wait for the next circuit split, and then you kind of say, okay, at the time that circuit split occurred, that's when the Supreme Court is <laughs> going to review the case. How much has the technology changed the dynamic? Uh, so it makes the timing of circuit splits and the timing of Supreme Court review really important to know what's going to happen. So if you're right and about equilibrium and um, and people haven't been as consciously aware of it uh, until now, until recently, um, although you point out sometimes opinions do actually talk quite a, the Kylo opinion, for example, really does talk in this register. Um, if you're right, how sh- should it change the way people brief cases? Either at the Supreme Court or the Court of Appeals? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, let me talk the Supreme Court first. I think at the Supreme Court level, um, it it should change how parties brief cases in the sense that they should be more confident about proposing new rules. Um, there's a lot of case law on which you could sort of make this argument without having to do it specifically. You know, you, no one's going to be saying equilibrium adjustment. They're going to be saying in Riley, the court recognized that computers are different and call for a new approach. 
the new approach should be X, right? So they're going to they're right. going to make the move without sort of going through the academic label the way things you know normally normally would happen. Um, but I think it's just kind of a, a an explicit recognition of new environment calls for new facts that would be harder to make that kind of claim beforehand. Um, and in terms of the lower courts, it's I don't think you know usually lower court briefing since usually that there's confined by precedent there's sort of limited rooms to roam what what parties will do is say although that case you know let's say you're trying to brief a case on the the search incident to arrest issue before riley you can say well in the robinson case it was a narrow search the nature of this case is dramatically different and sort of effectively hope that the cart the court is willing to carve out an exception just for your case and then that raises the issue of how broad is the riley case and uh, or the, sorry, the, the earlier Robinson case. It's not clear to me that the briefing is that different. I think it's more the judicial decision-making. My my sort of hope, the, the dream of, of this Larview article, is that judges and justices deciding Fourth Amendment technology cases feel, they have a sense of the history. They have a sense of how the, the rules have evolved and are more willing to recognize that sort of new new rules are okay that's kind of so in, in a way that that this idea is sort of addressed more to judges than it is to, to litigants so do you think uh when in, in thinking about new rules that that the riley decision will spill over to the contents of warrants and and what i'm thinking is because I, I actually don't know if 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 warrants these days give um permission to search if it's just you can search everything on the phone or nothing on the phone or and how that relates to homes, like whether warrants typically issue with the authority to search the entire house or, or none of the house or parts of the house. Uh, Cause I, I'm thinking, you know, to the extent everything is on the phone, a warrant to search the phone is like a warrant to search everything the person owns. You know, it's like you have the authority to search everything. Um, and, and I don't know how common that sort of thing is. The general warrants are unlawful, right? So what I is, would think so. What does right. the word general mean in this context? Right. Well, yeah, that's that seems to me the problem, right? When every piece of information you have is accessible either on the phone itself or through the cloud, through the phone, then every warrant begins to look like a general warrant. And, and I just didn't know how the limiting, how ordinary warrants are limited in either computer cases or even real property cases and whether there's an analog for phones. I hadn't really thought about it. So so courts have really struggled with this question. Um, and let me take probably the, the easiest kind of scenario is, is like uh, digital evidence generally. The government wants to search a home for electronically stored information, and they don't know that the home might have five laptops and 500 CD-ROMs and three thumb drives. And the government has no idea exactly what the devices are or um, where the evidence might be. Yeah. Uh, and, and what the warrants usually will say is they're looking for um, evidence of the following crimes. So let's say it's a case involving um, a fraud scheme. The, the courts have said you can't really get more particular than evidence of the fraud scheme, say, from a certain date to a certain date, if it's kind of a known specific you know, fraud scheme, defrauding a bank in a certain time window, say. Yeah. Um, but they'll let the government look through all the digital evidence to find that evidence, all, all the computers to find, you know, basically looking through that the haystack to find the needle, um, because there's kind of no obvious practical alternative to that. So th- there's a lot of 
disagreement on what the rules should be in terms of limiting computer searches. That's, I think, one, that's one of the next big areas that I, I think the lower courts have already started to get into uh, and the Supreme Court eventually is going to have to get into. What are the rules in terms of when can the government seize all the devices and look through them? How can they look through them? How did the plain view exception apply? <coughs> Excuse me. There's a lot of variables that the courts are going to have to play with. Yeah. And it, it it just seems, you know, every device now connects to everything. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm overstating it a little bit, but that seems to be, you know, you know, the direction. of it. <laughs> And um, I don't know. It seems like it's going to be a really hard problem. Joe, you're looking at me like you. Yeah, no, it do- I'm, I mean, it, I agree with you. It does sound it does sound like a, a, a already a bad problem. And it sounds like it's only going to get worse. I mean, to the degree that things are interconnected. uh and and that it would make sense on technological grounds for efficiency's sake uh for information to be uh multiplied in copies and stored in lots of places uh then the f- it it might actually make sense to look over here in your toaster for information <laughs> about where you how fast you were driving your car that day <laughs> right, right i mean right, it, yeah, you can, yeah. it doesn't take that much imagination to to think of the world arriving at and that that's state what, of and that's why right? i was thinking right and and i was i was thinking that if if that's where we are it, it's kind of like the same set of concerns you have about um government um crime labs where in a lot of states they essentially work for the police and there's concern about collusion and impartiality and so there's been a call for like impartial independent forensics labs and i haven't followed this in detail but I've, i know that that's uh been a proposal um and i wonder at what point you have like an independent like digital property uh you know uh agency or something else and and what the police can do is to make discrete queries about the uh about the objects contained and seized digital devices and and those queries can be approved by a judge the judge approves certain queries and Mm. You know, in so other this words, this is actually a, a current debate in the in the cases about whether individual magistrate judges that issue digital evidence warrants can can condition the issuance of the warrant on following a specific protocol for searching it. And and so, so some magistrate judges have taken the view that they're worried the computer searches are too broad, so they will only issue the warrant if the government agrees to do certain keyword keyword searches or only search for, you know, a, a few days and then come back to the court and then try to ask for permission to search for some more time. This is a, a big, uh, a big debate. And, and it's very different from, uh, from what we've seen in the physical context. You don't, if the government gets a warrant to search a house for, you know, a stolen diamond or something, the warrant won't say you're allowed to search the kitchen. And if you look through the kitchen, you can do that for a half hour and then you can search the bathroom and then you <laughs> right. have to go home. <laughs> right. Um, it just says search the house. And, and, you know, realistically, if the police are searching a house, they will ransack the house. I mean, searches are, are not pretty things so that they can be quite extraordinarily invasive. And so then you, you run into the computer setting where there's just so much information. What, what do you do when the information could be anywhere? And the, and the scenario that I think, um, was suggested a minute ago is one that I talk about in my computer crime class. Kind of imagine the Internet of Things ten years from now, twenty years from now, when there's everything has a microchip in the house and the data could be anywhere in the kind of house network. How does the government execute a search warrant for for evidence? You know, do they take the house? <laughs> um, do they? How do? You, what if it's just impractical to copy 
the entire house data. Uh, and if they do have to copy the entire house data, you know, w- what do they do with that copy? And, and court, courts are kind of grappling with these issues. There's been some absolutely fascinating cases. Uh, the Second Circuit handed down a really interesting decision uh, just a few months ago, a few months ago called United States versus Ganius, uh, which delved into some of these problems. It was the government executes the first warrant, uh, I think, in 2003. And when it executes the warrant, it copies the sus- copies files held by the suspect involving someone else's crime. Um, uh, so they, they, they make digital copies. They don't actually seize any physical evidence. And then about two years later, they begin to su- suspect that that individual was engaged in different crimes. And they think, they think to themselves, wow, we actually have still in police custody a full set of the 2003 files of our suspect. And they get a second warrant to search those seized files. Yeah. And the Second Circuit says you can't do that. You can't do that because the only reason the government had a copy of those files was because they had to overseas in the 2003 case. And they, they're not allowed to go back those extra files. It's almost like a use restriction. Uh, having seized the files the first time, they couldn't use it for the second investigation. And that, that I think, is kind of the beginning of a response to this problem of what is the government, what are they allowed to do when they have so much data because they need to have so much data when they execute these searches. And when it's so durable. It's not just that they have it, it's that it doesn't degrade. Uh, absolutely right. Absolutely right. It can last for, you know, for, for a long, long time. So, so, and, and if it, it's a really fascinating practical problem and, and it's, it's a hard problem that becomes very, very common when you start making, you know, when, when so much evidence is stored digitally, these, these sort of scenarios just become an everyday kind of scenario. So well, yeah. And what you, of, what you worry about is the, is the police routinely gathering, you know, full digital snapshots of our lives based on, you know, maybe reasonable suspicions, but there's doesn't pan out. And, right. and just and, bank it and, and save it. And there's basically like a police Google. And anytime they do have a suspicion, they can uh, you get a warrant and go back in and search the uh, the, the Joe Google, right? <laughs> which is right. search all of Joe's old snapshots, which were picked up on various speeding incidents and suspicions of all the This is going to be a very things. boring file, I'm, let me tell you. Well, <laughs> I don't know, Joe. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's my claim. Yeah. Well, let me ask you about one more thing, Oren. Um, uh, speed traps. Um, if you don't mind, if you don't mind Absolutely. going out on a limb here, um, because uh, this issue I have to say is has pegged Joe on the show as as something of a monster. So uh, we'll see where this. <laughs> I, I we'll knew see. it all along. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, suspicions are now verified. A lot of people suspected, but um, uh, so so let, let's just get your your personal view first, and then maybe your legal view. So so Oren, if if you're traveling down the road. I don't know where, you know, maybe, maybe it's one of these two lane highways. Um, and, uh, and you notice as you pass a, uh, a police cruiser, you know, in the, in the shade of some pine trees or something like that. And they've got the radar gun out and, um, and are pointed it down the road at, at traffic, which is oncoming from your perspective. Uh, you pass that police cruiser. Uh, do you routinely or, or often or, or sometimes, uh, flash your lights to warn oncoming drivers of the speed trap? Uh, I have not done that. Really? Yeah. Now I, I have the human instinct to tap on the brakes the second you see a police officer. <laughs> so, uh, I, I, I never that's doubted warning I, the per, that's I never, warning the person behind you. <laughs> I never doubted your self-preservation <laughs> instincts. Um, 
but no, I, I never, I never have. No, now why? No, but you know that people do this, right? You're aware that people, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and you've, you've probably, have you ever been the beneficiary of, of light flashing? Uh, I guess I have. I, I mean, maybe I just don't, I don't drive fast enough for this to be <laughs> a big, big on my uh, list of concerns. But yeah, I, I guess I, I've seen it. I've, I've. I've seen the cases where somebody was actually ticketed for, I think, obstructing justice. There you go. Yeah, this, that's what uh, got us into this. This is our area. In, this in is our area. Yeah, yeah. Raised, like a, was it a First Amendment challenge? Ab- absolutely. Right. Yeah. First. Well, yeah. There have been several different ones, but but the First Amendment is 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 the main one. And actually, it seems like almost a trivial area of law. And it's one of these where you built, you know, someone brings out the sledgehammer of the First Amendment in this. Uh, <laughs> but why not? I routine mean, traffic, especially thing. nowadays. <laughs> That's true. It's it's used to smash everything. So and yet there's might some as well smash this. I think there's something really interesting going on, other than the fact that you have now, or in a, you know, I, I I'm not alone anymore. You're not alone. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I won't call a guest a monster. I'll call Joe a monster. Um, <laughs> or, or, and I'll just call you eccentric on this point. Um, uh, but uh, it is, you know, it, people have very different kind of attitudes about what is like socially responsible and, and neighborly and uh, a good citizen type response in these scenarios. And so there are actually these old, th- these cases, which some of them say there's a First Amendment right to, I guess, the Speech Act of light flashing. And, and it seems very much obviously to turn on what you think the person is trying to say, right? If they, if they are aiding and abetting, that's one thing. If they're trying to say, you know, hey, you might want to slow down because you don't want to break the law. Well, you know, it's hard to say someone doesn't have a right to tell someone else not to break the law. Yeah, that right. actually seems like a good thing to do. Yeah. Encourage I, somebody to be more law about yeah, it. Yeah, so what, what do you think about this? How would you, how would you handle one of these cases, Oren? I mean, I, I, my instinct here would be that the um, ticketing somebody for flashing their lights to try to slow somebody down is somewhat absurd. Um, so f- for the reason that, you know, a, a lot of the reason that the officers are present is to create a general deterrence um, uh, you know, sense of, oh, you can't speed here because there are a lot of police here. Right. Um, so, so it's the presence of the police car, even if they never pull anybody over, that's what does a lot of the job of making sure people are not speeding, you know, crazy at crazy speeds on the highway. So whether that's done through a flashing light of a citizen or the officer or the, the driver actually seeing the officer, I don't think that makes any difference. Well, I mean, but, it, but if everyone always flashes their lights and that's, you know, so you, you can be pretty much guaranteed that if at least you're in a well-traveled place that you will never be caught out unawares by a speed trap because you'll see a light flash then then the whole project of randomly placing police officers to provide general deterrence is undermined right no no that's what he's calling into question he's saying it's it's vindicated by this practice what's what's frustrated by it is police generating revenue by writing tickets no, but no but, one but, goes. But, but people don't travel more slowly. So if if the police yeah, project do, is for the to, time when they're yes, but only the, only only until they pass a police yeah, car, but the, or the, maybe even more generally, it no, makes them more no, mindful but, about it. Mm. And so for maybe five whole minutes, they drive less speedily. That's five minutes that that's better. I don't think that's the project of the police officers, though, right? The project is the, the, to for people not to be aware in general that there might be police officers with a radar gun around any corner, and and you should just generally slow down because you never know. But if Although you're always going to be warned, yeah, go ahead. That would require somebody who's driving to say, well, nobody has flashed their lights at me yet. So I'm going to assume that there are no police cars around the corner. 
Right. That's what I'm saying. If 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 you if we were in a world where people always flash their lights, and at least if you're in a place where there's a some modicum of of, of traffic, continuous traffic, then th- that's kind of the limiting principle here, right? That that social that that social practice would completely uh, um, destroy the the project of the police there. Um, well, I think actually, you know, you, you're pointing to a way that private individuals can make sure that people are not speeding. We should just be flashing our lights. <laughs> oh, yes. Even better. You know, it's um, it's interesting. I I it was I'm so glad we stumbled into this area back when we did. I don't know. I don't remember exactly when we did. I think but it was the speed it, trap episode. Charlie. Yeah. But yeah. but it helped me discover that I have this. I, I would go further than saying I don't I don't flash my lights. I have I think I have like a speed trap aphasia. Like I kind of I kind of don't even recognize that it's happening. Like it doesn't occur to me to flash my light. I don't I don't I just don't mm-hmm. process the event as an event like that. Are you sure you needed speed trap as a adjective to describe <laughs> nice nice <laughs> oh, oh my gosh well we did see one case where like i said where they cited emmanuel kant uh for uh the principle um that uh well well this is the thing like if you don't tell people you know it was you know kant's categorical imperative which was thought to speak to this case somehow to to say what you should do and um if you don't you could make an argument either way right if 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 everybody warned, then that would be bad. Or if nobody warned, then that would be bad. And um, and I think it was cited for the principle that um, you have an individual duty not to warn, right, Joe? Because if everybody warned, then, yeah, and that, yeah, yeah. And, and then we, we, which sounds very that it, that strikes me as quite perverse. And, um, and even we, though I myself am a person who doesn't warn, yeah. um, I, I really think warning folks as a way, given how how readily that could be a way to remind people to make a better decision i think it's strange to say no one should do it all right well last question Warren, which is related to this and and kind of takes the the hypo to the next level if you're this was the, this is was this the, the liquor store hypo yeah the liquor store oh! hypo and you got you see somebody with a trench coat about to pull out a sawed off shotgun right Okay, and you point your and, and you and you. <laughs> Orin's like, I don't want to be say, in this I liquor did, store. I did not prepare for this question. Well, with, uh, <laughs> I did not know this. Was <laughs> don't worry, it won't be on the test, Orin. It won't be on the test. But uh, I just want your reaction. I mean, so and you, so, so you see this person start to, uh, you know, pull back the trench coat, and there's the sawed-off shotgun, and, and you point. Just look them in the eye, and you point over to indicate a police officer um, is is coming in the store. So the question is, do you point or not? Is that the question? Well, the question is, well, I, I don't, I don't have a lot of experience in that setting, so I don't, I, I can't, none, I can't so say I'm... what I, what I would do. But, but is that a kind of obstruction? Like that, that see that signal too oh, is, is that ambiguous. obstructing justice? Yeah, because because on the one hand, like you're encouraging the person not to get caught by indicating, hey, not now, the cops are nearby, right? That sounds. But on the other hand, that may be the most peaceful, cleanest way of ensuring that there is not like mayhem and violence, right? Although uh, I gotta say, this, this scenario strikes me as really weird. So uh, <laughs> we specialize is, in that. We specialize it, in that. Am I going to tell the guy with the sawed-off shotgun who's about to blow people away, "Hey, you might want to be careful because there's <laughs> right. a police officer"? <laughs> right. I'm probably not going to start communicating with the guy with the sawed-off shotgun because because why would I draw attention to myself? Um, wouldn't the more likely thing to be to be like, um, "He's got a gun. There's a cop." sort of let everyone know that this is what's going on or I, I guess I'm tr- sort of think of 
try whatever would minimize um, harm. That's <laughs> what well, I'm that, thinking. Well, that but, says, but it's um, not clear yeah. that sort of signaling to the guy with the like trying to start, open up a line of communication <laughs> to the shooter is really the way to do that. So, that well, that moment. that says something. Then that that attitude says something about how you would think about someone who was arrested for doing that thing, right? So if someone was arrested for aiding and abetting by kind of because they were pointing. Um, and who says when you ex- ask, like, why did you do that? He's just like, dude, I just wanted I wanted him to not do it. And right. I thought if I pointed out there was a policeman there, he wouldn't do it. Right. And, and okay. see, yeah, yeah, that sounds bizarre, right? I mean, it, and it does well, in a way it, sound bizarre. In terms of criminal liability, it would all depend on whether they had an intent to further the crime or an intent to stop the crime. Right. So. Right. So it'd just be a fact question in terms of whether they're liable. Well, it's hard to imagine why you would want to facilitate like, oh, I see someone with a sawed-off <laughs> shotgun. He's about to kill some people. That's awesome. Why don't I try to help a lot? Like that that'd be sort of a I don't know if I used a sawed-off shotgun in the first the first time we talked about this. I don't remember okay. what what I yeah. used. So I like it. Maybe why, maybe why I made it too violent. To, I made it too violent, I think. Why would you want to encourage somebody committing a crime? Um but, you, but it would it would you all, wouldn't, it, you it wouldn't all boil to, down to whatever their intent was, at least in terms of a classic criminal law answer. But but you I mean you wouldn't want to that's but the, isn't the whole question whether or not you are actually encouraging them. You're not encouraging them if you say, don't do that, because you you would be caught. You might not realize it, but there's a policeman right here. And are you saying encourage is a subjective question of what you're trying to do or what the effect will be of what you're doing? Ah, I was thinking of the the former, but you're right to suggest the latter is important as well, because I, I mean, I, I might. I might be so strange that I don't realize it. It would have that contrary effect. Joe has sawed-off shotgun aphasia. I do. <laughs> it just doesn't. I do. Never. I do. Just but, don't see him when you pass down. Yeah, uh, I got ha, it. Uh, fortunately, I do not have policeman aphasia. Generally, at least I don't think I do. Hmm. Um, you didn't see. Yeah, yeah. Well, you see, maybe how there's would a you policeman know? right here, and how I don't you realize know? that. I don't well, know. Well, this that gets back to the. Uh, to the GPS case, was it Jones and the the constable and the, the tiny constable and <laughs> yes, the coach? And the, the mini constable, yes. <laughs> All right, but that's going to take us too far afield. I and think we'll, so. We're going to have to have Oren back to talk about that Correct. case and many others. Uh, Oren, after you've had more time for reflection on these critical questions of the First Amendment and speed traps and sawed-off shotguns. And mini constables. And I'm sure you're just going to write an article about it, because um, that's what you do. And then, we'll have, and then we'll have you back on to, to, tell, <laughs> us, to tell us how you've solved this problem. Sounds good. I look forward to it. Excellent. Listen, thanks a lot for joining us. I really appreciate it. You bet. Thanks. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. 